Crunch, we are going to be discussing a new book called Building the New Economy, Data as Capital. The tagline on the book is quoted as how to empower people and communities with user-centric data ownership, transparent and accountable algorithms, and secure digital transaction systems. I first saw this book on Twitter. It was one of the founders, well, the founder, Guy of Secret Network, formerly Enigma. This is out of the MIT press. He went to MIT and he was tweeting about the book. And so immediately piqued my interest. Just a new, newly released book about how to approach the new economy. And I'm joined with Jake here. We are good friends. We're just going to talk about the book every week, hopefully. We'll stick to a schedule and talk about one or two chapters. What does the book talk about? And then have a small discussion after just walking through it. Just a really informal and casual conversation, a way for us to internalize this content and create some discussion out there in the world. So I'll put a link in the episode to the book, but we will just get started. So, um, so Jake, I guess if you wouldn't mind talking about, first of all, what about this book made was interesting to you? I mean, why did you want to talk about this book and, and look at it? Yeah. Uh, so first of all, you know, you had already recommended, I, I think, I think it started with you because you had recommended that book on Jennifer Doudna and the um, CRISPR technologies. Uh, I forget what that book was called, but it was really good. So you, you definitely had some credibility in my book with your book recommendations, but you know, the title, Building the New Economy, Data as Capital, uh, two concepts of economics and data actually fell in line with a lot of what I've already been reading. Uh, this year, I read a book, uh, Weapons of Math Destruction, M-A-T-H Destruction, uh, about uh, how big data is kind of uh, some, some of the dangerous sides of how these huge algorithms that are uh, very opaque, you know, they, they, we use them for everything from evaluating colleges to um, sorting, uh, you know, who doesn't, doesn't get a loan, all these different areas of our economy. And yet we don't really know much about what goes into them. They have that black box component. And then I've also been, uh, I'm halfway through that Piketty's Capital in 21st Century. I've read a couple other economic books. It's kind of the bulk of where my reading usually takes me. So this was a nice, uh, yeah, sort of, uh, synergy between those two uh, topics and, uh, you know, building the new economy. It's a very bold, uh, you know, argument to make, trying to reinvent. Uh, so, so, yeah, so that was uh, your recommendation. And then the fact that it was kind of aligned with what I've been looking at already. Jennifer Downer book is, by the way, called Codebreaker. That was a really good biogra biography about her. And this book, by the way, one thing I've been thinking a lot is just this, the world's changed so much with the COVID pandemic and the future is just going to look so much different. That's obvious to everyone, but it's got me concerned, got me excited. I'm optimistic. I'm just really trying to get my head around what does it look like and this um you know it starts off just by getting right into the two major disruptions that we're facing as a society number one being the economic and health shocks created by covid and number two the pervasiveness of data 
the uprising of crypto technology, and then of course the AI, like you just talked about the the weapons of math destruction out there. So this challenge that we face as a society of biased algorithms making decisions. How do you eliminate those biases from algorithms? How do you make sure that it's equitable on one side, but effective? More importantly, I think. Um, I mean, view that it's it's just important mm-hmm. to have this efficient system. But of course, removing these biases that create inequality or uh, uh, you know oppression or anything mm-hmm. like that. So they they get. When they start the book, I mean, they, they basically yeah. give an introduction right away that we have to reinvent the ways that data and AI are used in our systems from a civic and government perspective, and that data is now actually a full-fledged means of production. So he makes the argument, or he or she, I don't know who it is, that we need to think of data as a new type of capital, and that we need better sharing around that capital and a better understanding how we're going to be using that capital in the future. So, yeah, well, and, you know, I so I my first question was data is capital, if that's your argument. Uh, I, I did. The first thing I could think of was I Googled the official definition of capital and it fits. It, it really does. I mean, you know, it's uh, uh, if, if you want to define it as wealth in the form of money or other assets owned by a person or organization that's contributed for a particular purpose, such as starting a company or investing. I mean, that's that's data nowadays. You have entire organizations and companies that can spring up with data and people, labor um, as their, you know, as their inputs, uh, entire political parties and entire campaigns are their input is effectively data and it's growing more and more. So no, I, I think the if you're trying to make a case to, to treat data as its own form of capital, I think it's a. Uh, pretty bulletproof argument and so then of course as you mentioned uh with uh with data with its uh or sorry with wealth and with capital's historical tendency to accumulate over time uh you know we we ought to treat it as capital and treat it like we treat other forms of capital I, i think it's uh pretty pretty good argument to make of course how you do that is is uh is what the bulk of the book is about but yeah, that remains to be seen, right? How do you do that? We need to make a framework. The the authors argue that we need a framework for approaching this. The the problem with capital, right, is the in in uh, the wealth inequality and the the concentration of capital. And so we're facing a similar thing right now, right, where this data that's generated through interacting on software platforms or just general activities spinning out all this metadata that is very valuable in aggregate, but at an isolated level, maybe not so. You know, when you can actually run pattern recognition and algorithms across large data sets, it becomes insanely valuable. So we need to have an understanding of the voluntary participation. You know, if, if I'm using a software system, I may I might not have really consented to somebody else to harvest this data. Now it's probably an illegal agreement or whatever, a user term agreement, but there's no framework, regulatory, uh, regulatory framework for figuring out how to effectively use that data really in, in today's age. And this is going to be something we have to grapple with as AI becomes even further 
in, in, entwined in everything we do. So that's, I think, one of the core challenges they talk about. And one of the solutions in Chapter 2, they're talking about specific examples of cooperative models. So they talk about during the last 150 years, when there's been this significant concentration of power emerging, there are citizens feeling trapped and exploited by the powerful new companies. You think about the oil barons and the steel barons of the mid to late 1800s. And then in the 1900s, it was the form of financial exploitation, or, I mean, that's the way they they frame it, but the way that the, the banking institutions are extracting a ton of value out of people over history, historical times, um, you know, yeah. just for running banking accounts and things like so, that. Yeah. And, and so one of, I guess my, I don't want to, I don't know if it's criticism specifically in terms of the strengthening of unions as a response to, um, you know, more powerful, uh, concentrated capital, the, these robber barons, um, you know, a, a lot of the strength of those unions came on the back of new deal policies. So, you know, if you think about the New Deal being a, a federal program, that's really, yes, these unions existed, uh, you know, but they gained a lot of their strength from a top-down perspective. And the authors in the book really make the case that um, this new economy has to be built from the bottom up with these hyper-local type of um, local data co-ops, kind of neighborhood by neighborhood, um, maybe even city by city. So we have a lot of book to get to, but that, that is one thing I, I want to see where the authors go, what role they see the federal government, some of these larger institutions is having, because I think they say early on very clearly that they don't see much of a role for very large, very, I mean, that is one of their central criticisms with large, um, uh, organizations, large institutions is that they, they're not nimble enough and, and they can't represent their members enough. Um, so, you know, if at some point, if you want some of these organizations to represent the people, if you want them to fight against um, the powers that be in, in data, which are Amazon, Facebook, the fangs. And I mean, if you want these smaller local co-ops to have teeth, you're going to need some federal uh, legal power behind them. You're going to need to pass some laws. You're going to need to get your hands dirty in the political realm to uh, to really balance the scales. But um, but I might be opening up a little bit too much. I mean, I, I like the idea at least oh, you know, trying to form things at a community level. Yeah, and they make that pitch. I think that the decentralized nature of communities, and it, as far as the unions go, I mean, the the New Deal comment. I think I think what they're getting at is more about the kind of the labor movement of the late 1800s because the New Deal was around the 1930s, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. That was. And so I, that was 30 in my mind, I'm think I, I think that they're alluding more towards like the origin of Labor Day and you know those riots when people when they they made the comment that the very mm-hmm. idea of freedom itself for workers was under threat and siege. I mean. I don't think that's a stretch to say that if you were just an ordinary worker working at a steel factory or a mine or whatever in those those late 1800s, there wasn't a lot of upward mobility. I mean, you had to, at least my understanding, the way I view that is 
you're kind of there, there were very monopolistic powers before antitrust laws even were a thing you know with uh jp morgan and carnegie and all those other guys who were very successful and everything this isn't a i mean i i enjoy studying what they did and stuff but they're arguably mm-hmm. quite exploitative with with the way they use labor but the um this idea that the unions at that time were coming about and I view those through a lens. I view that that historical segment of time differently than I view unions today. I think it's just different. But um, mm-hmm. I, I think the so, I think the key takeaway there is just community organization yeah. is a natural byproduct of concentration of power because there there has to be this balancing effect. And so the two the two organizations that they really talk about are electric co ops which I think you could argue is a response to the concentration of electricity, oil, uh, the co- concentration of the utility, the, the people who extract fossil fuels, perhaps the response to that, maybe that's a stretch, but um, the cooperative model of the way electric utilities cover over 50% of the land in the U.S. So co-ops, of course, are, from what I understand, not a profit-oriented enterprise, but focused on utility of the actual underlying utility of electricity. And the second institution, which you alluded to was credit unions. And the example I thought was interesting, I think it was $220 billion of, I can't, I don't know if I have the the number here, but there was a significant amount of, yeah, $220 billion in community projects being funded by small banks and credit unions in, I don't know if it was last year or the year before in the U S. So, those are those are two powerful statistics. One half the country in the land, half the land in the country in the U.S. is covered by electric cooperative models. And number two, that small banks and credit unions, which are locally owned, are investing hundreds of billions of dollars in their communities. So the the takeaway there, I think, is these cooperatives are voluntary. They're collaborative pooling of individuals. And how do we try to do something with that model, but as da- with, with data instead? And I, I mean, the whole time I'm reading this, I mean, I'm thinking crypto, I'm thinking DAOs, I'm thinking decentralization. I think that's one way where you, you see this start to come up, and I have comments on that. But, um, you know, just mm-hmm. what do you, what's your reaction well, to that? So... Before I give you my reaction, I just want to tell you, I completely agree with your comment earlier about viewing, you know, the labor movement in earlier terms. So I Googled it and the first, at least, you know, the first uh, massive labor movement uh, in the United States was 1869, right in the middle of the Gilded Age, right when, you know, industrialization and the robber barons were beginning to reach their peak. So I think you are spot on, by the way, with viewing this as more of a uh, late 1800s phenomena. So definitely yeah gilded age that's 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 the right word yeah but um but yeah so the uh oh man i knew i was gonna derail what was what was uh would you ask me well the the credit unions i mean the natural the the cooperatives the way that the response has been to this Mm -hmm. concentration of power you have the concentrated electricity providing of i don't know oil is the right metaphor but yeah, we're using these what cooperative to say, models to to achieve outcomes in society that objectively look pretty good. I mean, if half the 
half of the land's electricity is covered mm-hmm. or half of the land is covered by electric co-ops. That's inherently seems like a good thing that there's no entities profiting off of just basic standard of living. I mean, having electricity is, is basic at this point. And then two, that there's $220 billion of community investment going in from locally owned organizations, I think is a great statistic. Yeah, I think it's a good instinct to look for existing uh, organizations that already have a footprint and some credibility um, working for communities. So credit unions seem like a great place to start. Um, you know, if you're trying, if you if you're not trying to reinvent an entire, entirely new institution from scratch, um, but uh, no, I, I think it really wouldn't surprise me if people. You know, it's, it's no secret. I don't think it's, I think it's pretty inarguable that over the last couple of decades, people have become uh, very disillusioned with existing institutions uh, in politics and economics and education. So maybe instead of looking at these massive national institutions, they begin to look at, well, you know, I'm sick of this shit. You know, I, I, I want something that represents a little more local. Uh, I want something that, uh, I can feel more involved with. And yeah, the, I think uh, credit unions are right there already in the community. This would be a pretty radical shift in responsibilities though. I know that they mentioned uh, credit unions already collect quite a bit of data already involved in, you know, providing a lot of the banking core banking functions to communities. They even do some reinvestment you mentioned, but to act as the fiduciary of their members' entire, you know, data, that, that's, uh, I, I view that as a pretty fundamental uh, shift in the nature of credit unions. So it's a, yeah. a big shift. I mean, yeah, here, I'm going to, so, so Jenny's lining up here to come on. I'm going to, I'm going to bring her on and I'm going to comment on, uh, one thing there, but the thing I think really is that idea of being a fiduciary of the data. And I don't think they're arguing that credit unions should be the ones overseeing the data, but the idea that the, the positive outcomes we've seen with the credit union model is that there's incentive to handle that effectively because they're members of the community that own the credit union. I, I think the, the members of the of the union on of the credit union own a piece of, of the union, right? Cause they're, they're profit sharing or they're doing whatever they're, they're enticed by lower fees or something, but yeah. the, um, yeah, it's a proof of concept. Yeah. And so I think that concept of the fiduciary responsibility of the data, um, is super interesting because you need, in my view, a community led fiduciary where it's, this is all done at the community level, right? If we're not talking about, um, well, they do talk about having possibly a hundred million, you know, think about a hundred million U.S. consumers all under fiduciary unity of, of that large group of data it, that that's where that's gets really hard to even think about. But when we're still on this community level, it's, it's a little easier because communities naturally decentralize in terms of like-mindedness and uniformity, I think. I mean, you, you generally move and live where you feel welcome and you feel like you get along with people. 
and that's where they talk about the the this distrust of mm-hmm. of each other has never been more pervasive like at, at the time at this time being and today there's so much mistrust or distrust amongst community members where we're just politically tribal and there's not a lot of discourse or trust built with each other and that creates the problems of crime poverty uh detrimental development of children you know school problems and all that all comes down to this idea of trust and so if you're going to build a data cooperative you you can't really do that unless people trust each other that they're acting with fiduciary responsibility of of the data and i say fiduciary not as a financial fiduciary but like this is i think the concept that we need to be hashed out is what what are the what are the responsibilities of a data fiduciary the, the responsibilities of a financial fiduciary i think are are written in stone and everything I, if i were to summarize it my take is that you are supposed to act with the best interest like legally required to show that you're acting in the best interest from a financial perspective so a board member has a or a ceo of a company right. has a fiduciary responsibility to the board members and investors to evaluate any and all M&A opportunities of the company or if you're a financial advisor you have to be optimizing for fees and and things like that in, in a way but that idea of a data fiduciary i think is the real key component of all of this this data cooperative stuff i mean i totally agree because with how pervasive data is and how many people want to use your data i mean i'm trying to imagine managing all of my data on my own, trying to decide who does and doesn't get access, uh, trying to negotiate on a, like a potential data exchange, a rate for different companies to use my data. And I think just like managing a investment portfolio, some people have the time and the energy and the desire for it. But I think most people just kind of want someone they can trust to manage it for them in their best interest. So I'm with you. I mean, the, the, the concept uh, sounds good to me because there already exists this desire to have to claim some ownership over the data that we create. So, um, but how, how much control people want, I, I think people want to know what's being controlled in their interest. I just don't think most people want to go through the minutia and the day-to-day, the constant, absolute constant management that that might require. So yeah, a, a A fiduciary makes a lot of sense. Yeah, Yeah, I think it's the use, you made the point, the user experience, the UX of data management has to be top notch. And Mm -hmm. my mind is just jumping to, to crypto, honestly. I think about the secret network and the way that they're doing NFTs now. Like imagine, so instead of logging into a website, you have your wallet and you log in with your wallet. And so if you have, because you can control so many different things at the permission level uh, when you opt into a crypto network. And what's cool about secret is you can, you can actually choose whether or not you want their, your NFTs to be public on your wallet. So like there's this issue in the NFT world on Ethereum, a public blockchain that, like anybody can see what you hold and how much money you have and what they're all worth. 
And so secret NFT, the functionality of making that public or private, you have the choice. It's super cool. But then there's opportunities, I think, in like, that's a very basic use case. But if you think about, if you were to log into, think about all the cookies, whenever you go to a website now, they're always saying, do you accept these cookies or whatever? Well, that could all be done in a wallet. And you could have, you could have settings on every single website, a uniform way through like a, some kind of blockchain wallet to, to allow sharing of different things. Mm-hmm. And it, it still is this nebulous because you don't necessarily know on the web protocol level, what's being shared and what's not. So if, if anybody's going to be harvesting data, there has to be voluntary opt-in. That's pretty clear. The fiduciary responsibility of whoever's overseeing that has to be pretty clear. And that's where the DAO, the DAO concept is really interesting because in a DAO, there's no central figure, really. The idea of having a decentralized autonomous organization, you have essentially the community voting for proposals. And depending on how the DAO is set up, there can be centralization of voting power within a DAO for sure. But you could, you could author and architect it to be a certain way. You know, we could do whatever we want. So there's certainly a future, I think, at the government and civic level to use that tech here, which is interesting. I just, um, I'm sure I'll have more thoughts on, as we go through this book on this. Um, but it's also bleeding edge that like nobody's really figured this out yet. And that's what's exciting about it. Yeah. Yeah. I guess one of the other questions I have is what what fairness looks like within a data co-op because one of the examples that was used was the funding of that that hydroelectric dam where i think people yeah yeah, they they uh people chipped in they received tokens for use later on uh it was something to that effect but if we want to imagine um a milwaukee data co-op um and then we talk about some of those issues of voting or you know representation um you know, right now, when it comes to representation in, in civic matters, it's one person, one vote. Um, you know, can you maintain that? Um, or is there going to become issues of, well, this person produces more data or produces more valuable data? Um, maybe they get a few more uh, tokens or representation than another. Uh, I, yeah, see. and that's where... A lot of these DAO type of systems, it's like, okay, well, there's financial misalignment sometimes where it's like you maybe you get rewarded with some token that allows you to vote. I mean, a lot of these protocols, it's like if you, you need to own 1% of some kind of token supply to be able to submit proposals and they're on-chain proposals. So then anybody mm-hmm. who holds some amount of tokens can vote on these proposals. So you decentralize all this voting stuff where like the community basically can vote on changes to the protocol. And that's where before, if you wanted to, I mean, you you can actually, you can, it's coded into the way the system is set up so that changes to the software are in a way determined by the users. And so it's, there's, there's a lot of potential with using that here. And I think your the hydroelectric example of how they, some community did that. I, I've never heard of that before. I want to read into that a little bit more, but that idea is super dope. Because, oh, yeah, um, 
obviously there probably were dissidents. There probably were people who voted against it, but ultimately the community voted for it. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I, I'm assuming they, I'm assuming they don't have like an open market for the tokens. Like they, they said like, yeah, one token that you can use later is not trading on an open market, but it's going to be a fixed representation of like $20 to your, your bill or something. I'm, I'm assuming, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, but, um, I want to look into that a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, there's, I mean, there's really, we're talking about building the new economy. I mean, there, there really doesn't exist a way that people have control over their data. So whatever form this takes, uh, the authors are pretty straightforward. It's, it's going to be delicate, you know, you have to, but you want to do it now and you want to try to do it with a vision in place so that the existing powers that be don't just come in, throw their weight around and, you know, continue to have the biggest seat at the table. So, yeah, I, I struggle with seeing the U S leading on this just because of how slow decisions make are made in the, in the government and how, how <laughs> messed up and broken it is. I see this probably being led by European countries like Estonia has a really forward-looking blockchain system. Um, and it's just like the GDPR privacy stuff is all European-led. Um, but I think you're going to need a robust, agile government system that starts to really lead on this. Switzerland, they have the direct democracy approach. So they, they, vote, on, they vote on single ticket issues one at a time. They're just more agile the way that their government runs. So... Those kind of things. I mean, in order to change the laws, I mean, this stuff is going to disrupt so much of of U.S. business that the way that we run our government here is is very much corporate-led. And you have big tech. uh, I'm not arguing for or against any of that, but it's just there's a lot of stakeholders who who can use their money to make sure that they're influencing these things. And it's just going to get, I, I don't know. I just don't see the U.S. leading on this. Mm-hmm. I'm with you because it has a little bit more collectivist um, attitude about it. And we are hyper individualistic here. Um, but this was a question I had. I'm interested to see what you think that if this, let's hypothetically say that the system that we're two chapters into, but let's say this system became, all right, this is what we're going to do. This is what we're going to advocate for. Let's try to make this a reality. Like I said earlier, you, you have to, and you just said, you have to change some laws. So where would you see this politically fitting in? Because in this country, we have two political parties. If you were in charge of trying to turn this into a political reality, do you see any, like, where, which party do you think you see maybe being more open to adopting this out of their platform? Do you, do you see neither of them, both of them? Um, God, that's a hard what question. You, I think it's libertarian. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It kind of seems like it, but and but you no, have but, to figure out a well. You have to figure out a way to <laughs> the, the, the both sides of the of the spectrum are are going to paint these things to be a certain thing, and so you, yeah. I, I just think it's got to be at the community level first. I mean it's either got to be a community level thing or it's got to be a constitutional amendment, which requires like two thirds of, of the country's voting populace to, to put it in. 
Yeah. And that's just so hard to do. I, I don't, I don't know. I think because on the, on the right, you have people saying, um, big tech is censoring free speech. And then on the left, you have people saying the, the big tech is profiting off of misinformation and we need more filtering of speech. And those are irreconcilable, but they're the same outcome, which is reigning in on big tech. So I, I think there is a way to do this pragmatically, but I'm not optimistic that the U S political climate is, is gonna really have, have that unless something major happens like some kind of some kind of cataclysmic event with big tech data or something crazy you know where people are like holy holy shit we need to we all of a sudden really really need to have a better way there's always gonna be a better way to do things Mm -hmm. and we're just so reactive in this country and not proactive we're not as experimental when it comes to government so um one thing I, i wanted to just to move this discussion along a bit was I like that idea of the community data. And there was this example they said where um, they could use modeling, they, they could use data science to figure out, looking at how people travel around a city or a community with like data from the public transit or, or tra- traffic data. And they could use that to accurately predict foot traffic and sales of different stores and public amenities, which I found was super interesting from an urban planning perspective. And so there's all this data that we're generating. That's not really Mm -hmm. being used because communities don't know how to do it. And nobody's really trying. It's going to take some innovative stuff. And so there was this tweet from Balaji from a couple weeks ago in September about this idea, like what if your community newspaper was recentered around a community dashboard and then somebody ended up tweeting to him this picture of a Kansas City or a Kansas newspaper where they started doing that. And so this just, I think, collecting and harvesting the data, um, right now it's in a very generic sense. Um, you know, the census is only once every 10 years and we get the super high level data, but we, we should figure out ways to measure data, community level, and not invade privacy, keep it transparent. And the way that you inform people of decisions is by showing them, okay, this is having a bad outcome. You, you maybe don't notice it because it's a, it's a slow moving thing. Like biology makes this argument of like removing sugar from your coffee. Like you might not know what it's doing to your heart unless you're measuring your, your vitals in some way on a daily basis until the change is too late. You want to, you want to catch these changes while they're mid trend and not at the end cycle of a trend. So this idea of community dashboards, I think is, is super cool. Um, and just putting the data in people's hands. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, it's like you said, we, we get a lot of the data about ourselves, about our communities are, is usually at the national level. It's usually some pretty standard statistics, GDP, um, employment, even around the local community, I mean, I, Milwaukee Journal Sentinel doesn't, I, I haven't seen anything like this. I'm not a subscriber, but um, yeah. I, exactly. I get- yeah, we don't have any, we, we, we're not trust. I feel like we're not trusted to like look at data and think about it. We are trusted only to be 
driven by headlines and clickbait and um that's just how profitability models are whatever gets you the most engagement in a newspaper is going to sell more newspapers or a website news website is going to eat what makes them money and so that's where this cooperative model is like okay maybe we should be community as a community level owning this fiduciary entity that's that's harvesting the data in some way that we are governing and we're sharing and being transparent with the data on the dashboard or whatever it is, a publication. And here's how we're going to just, just measure it because you can't improve something if you don't measure it and you're not aware of it. So I, I think that's like kind of tying it all in is we need to, we need to be trusted to, to make decisions on our own. And if, if there's community trust in the entity overseeing this data collection, instead of like Facebook or whatever, um, your device company, your phone company, nobody trusts really those, those companies to like look out for your interests, but we trust community orgs. We trust non community level nonprofits. There's a way to do it. So. Yeah. So I, I have two thoughts on, on that. The whole community data, um, you know, the example you used was in the paper. I mean, if you go onto the Milwaukee journal Sentinel website and you look up, um, like an article on the recent polls for any election um, kind of run into the same thing, which is that a lot of people are just, they're called bullshit. They're like, well, those numbers are fake. Polling numbers are fake. And um, exactly. I just wonder if, uh, you know, if you start collecting data about the community and giving it back to them, um, you know, you, you said it, I mean, trust is key and it's, it's just what organization could spring up in a community that would actually get people to believe that the data being shown is is honest but even if you could get that i think you run into another issue which is that these tools uh you know organizing collecting and utilizing data about a community in order to improve the way the community is organized um you know if, if everyone has this tool i'm thinking specifically let's compare shoreward which is a higher income neighborhood in milwaukee to um uh, like Northwest Milwaukee, which is, you know, the the poorest part of Milwaukee. I mean, you can reorganize the resources in Northwest Milwaukee as efficiently as possible, and, and maybe it helps. But if Shorewood and Whitefish Bay and downtown are all doing the same thing, trying to all get more foot traffic, more economic development, um, it's just at the end of the day that there's still just not enough resources in some of these communities that using using what you have as efficiently as possible still might not really make a difference. So we're, we're still kind of hitting on some longer term inequality issues that I don't know if data alone is capable of solving. Yeah, man, for sure. I mean, it's not a silver bullet. It's not a silver bullet for all these problems. Um, and they talk about this idea in the book, skill connectivity, the idea of having skills in your career that are transferable to some other role or something. That's, I think, pretty important is like the communities that have good skill connectivity are more resilient during downturns, which obviously prevent mm -hmm. people from falling into crime and things. So, I mean, the yeah. these community issues of the severe side of the spectrum obviously there's some fundamental stuff that needs to happen beyond just data data stuff but there's ways i think that 
we can use this to help. And one example was the uh, that I pulled together was the thing that San Jose is doing. The way they teamed up with the Helium blockchain, and they are actually overseeing uh, Helium mining in the community to then spend on low-income households to provide low-cost internet plans. And this, I think, is just like a perfect example here where there's this, there's this, um, the California Emerging Technology Fund, which I assume is some kind of state organization, is kind of teaming up with the city of San Jose and, of course, Helium, where they're going to be deploying these Helium coverage hotspots throughout the city, which provides uh, an IoT network that can then be used for a whole bunch of things. But then um, the way that blockchain works is that those units actually mine helium, which you can then sell, and they're going to be converting that into uh, gift cards that can be used for low house low income households to pay for their internet bills. So I mean, this is just one of those I think super innovative things that's happening, where it's not necessarily like a data cooperative or it's a little bit different, but it's this community innovation that's happening where you're, you're building the new network and the helium network is arguably owned and operated in a way that public company, the public telecom companies are not those public telecoms are public are profit driven enterprises. And the utility that we get as consumers is arguably diluted a bit by the profit incentive, but obviously we get benefits from, their innovations and stuff, but you know this. This is one area where it's a uh, the people. I mean, their tagline at uh, Helium is the people's network. Okay, so I don't mean to be a total Kool Aid drinking guy over there on their mm-hmm. side, but um, this is one really I think unique example of okay, what if what if you could somehow install these units at like food pantries and they could use it to buy food to redistribute to the the destitute. Or there's all sorts of things, I think, where if we just connect these dots, we can really we can really make the world a better place. And I mean, <laughs> I'm not going to sit here and say, yeah, crypto is alone is doing it or, you know, you have to figure out how do we combine these digital things with the real world and, and be innovative. It's not going to come from the, yeah. the bureaucracy of the government. We really have to get this started at the community level, get the proof of concept, show it can work. And that's on that's on us as individuals. Yeah, no, I think that's. I, I mean, I'm just hearing about this for the first time. The San Jose, uh, but I mean, anything that um, treats the internet as more as a utility rather than a consumer, you know, discretionary resource, I'm in favor of. I mean, it's an essential part of every one of our lives. So that's awesome. Um, and yeah, no, you you make a good point. I mean, uh, specifically, crypto is it, it's a tool. And uh, you can use that tool however you want. So no, I'm, I'm I'm happy to hear that it's being you know provided to places like yeah food pantries or any other you know community resources so that they can yeah the food pantry well the food pantry is actually my idea it's not been done yet but I I want to try to replicate this thing that San Jose is doing they're putting these hotspots around the city to and they're optimized for mining it and there's ways you can you can set them up to do that. And then they're just buying, they're, they're paying, they're subsidizing 
low-income households for their internet. And what's super interesting about this is the the helium goal is to to host 5G um, to do pro- provide 5G network service um, th- through the hotspots eventually. So there actually is ways. I mean, this is one way where you could potentially have the entire community own the infrastructure for for their internet, which thereby suggests they could own the infrastructure for their data. And then through through open source coding, you could actually build these data cooperatives and architect them that the authors discuss. So, I mean, I really see the path where this could happen, but what that looks like at the end product is yet to be determined. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's... It goes back to, I think, an issue I've, I mentioned to you before, which is that uh, a lot of the people involved in this space right now, a lot of the, like you, me, the other people we work with on this, you know, in our Slack channels and everything, um, they're people yeah. with that make a good chunk of money that are uh, data, what do you want to call it, conversant, or they, they understand some of these, you know, they're, they're well-educated, you know, they, they don't represent most of the population. And so at some point, yeah, you're going to have to make these front end products and you're going to have to make a pitch to people generally um, to why they should buy in to this as the solution, which again goes back. It's a, that's an inherently political discussion. And so I, I guess one of the questions I have is who leads this charge? I mean, the idea of a data co-op is great, but what person, what, you know, group, uh, you know, who, who, who spreads this message, who evangelizes this as, as, you know, the way that we should structure our economy or restructure it. Um, Cause obviously the authors are, I love that they put these ideas together, but um, you know, someone has to be the face. Someone has to pound the table, make the case and talk to people and, and explain why this is a good idea. And so um I'm interested to just, I mean, I think you, you know a little bit more about the people um, in this space than I do. Are, are there people that you see that could really be the, the, the leaders that, that might be worthy of the benefit of the doubt of, of maybe advocating for this path? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's a tough question. And I think it's at the community level still, like you really need to have these partnerships where you have kind of tech forward, innovative civic leaders. So I, I worked with a startup for about a year where we were trying to onboard cities to use some of the software that we were creating. I'm not involved with this group anymore uh, as of six or seven months ago, but dealing with city departments is so difficult. Trying to sell stuff to city departments is so difficult because they they're, you're coming to them saying, hey, we are going to change the status quo if you work with us and your job's going to change. You're going to have more work to do. I mean, I'm not t- trying to throw anyone on the bus here, but it's very t- tough to find innovative and forward-thinking city workers because they, I, I guess that's not the place you go to to look for innovation. Um, it takes a real culture of forward thinking at, at the city level of open-minded people who are willing to to grind a little bit outside of the nine to five uh working hours that most of the city people do um they're not really incentivized to 
to shake it up. So you have to, first of all, find the right people. Like it, it's gotta, there's gotta be buy-in from, from city p- workers if you're going to get this done. So I think about it as an entrepreneur, I guess, is that you have to have a good pitch. You have to have a, a model and explain what are the benefits and be fully transparent and honest about the costs because everybody that we talked to was always like, okay, well, what are you doing with this data? Are you selling this data? Are you monetizing this data that you're going to collect by using this platform with our city? And so you have to all be on the same page. And that's where I think you, it's probably not the entrepreneur is focused on, on building a sustainable business. So yeah, in order to build trust, you have mm-hmm. to be able to, it comes back to that like data fiduciary thing. I mean, we're, it's kind of circular here, but I guess I don't, I don't exactly know the answer. Um, there are people, it's just going to be at the community level and these nonprofit groups that I've worked with and seen, there's the infrastructure that exists at some of the bigger cities in the country to, to team up with city and po- political people to show, okay, we're doing things to drive outcomes here like the San Jose pro- project, I think is going to be a great thing that those, those city pol- politicians are going to be able to hang their hat on. Um, and then, I mean, on the crypto side of things, like, yeah, you're just going to need well-spoken people, not the crazy red pillars, the doomers who are, are, are trying to say <laughs> all doom and gloom stuff. You're going to have to have just professional Professional people, so so community organizations, uh, religious groups, and nonprofits that serve the community, I think are going to be a crucial partner here. Yeah, no, I mean, <laughs> you're definitely. I pessimism uh, does not sell in politics, nor it does not engender people to your cause. So, yeah, and and I think there's. You mentioned there's definitely a precedent for private public partnerships at all levels of government. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, if, if we if you have a city government, this you know a, a local government that's hesitant, uh, yeah, there probably needs to be a push from below from the people, and so that's gonna it's gonna require a lot of communication, uh, a lot of uh, you know explaining, teaching, persuading. But um, yeah, I mean, I mean, this this is not impossible. Uh, I go back to what you said earlier. I I think you'll probably see this in other countries before you see it here but um uh no i uh, oops. yeah because um you know this the, <laughs> i just go all the way back i mean there's so much data each and every one of us produce every single second and our communities produce and um yeah it's just an asset that's if you're not using it you're just you're just doing a worse job or you're not giving yourself the ability to do a better job. Right. It's powerful. It's powerful. And to just ignore it is, is a waste. Um, well, Hey, we've been talking for almost an hour. Jenny's in the queue. Um, yeah. Jenny, I don't know. Uh, well, Jake, I don't know what your time's like, but Jenny definitely wanted to pull you in here and see what you were thinking about all this stuff. If you had any comments or questions or suggestions. Yeah, it's been a, amazing conversation um i'm a parent and a grandmother and i i think the only thing that would be the biggest issue for me going forward is to protect children's privacy if possible and to not look at them as just these uh potential data mining opportunities 
I think that's where the big um, disconnect has come between the government and parents is that we have the FERPA laws that say, hey, you can't, you're not entitled to my child's data. And when the Common Core was spread across the country in the name of, you know, just equalizing curriculum and standardizing tests, well, there was a whole lot of data mining going on around all of those tests and that curriculum. And so that's where the, the distrust comes from, is that we feel like there's been some data mining that legally, number one, they're not allowed to do, but also there was no permission given from the parents to say, hey, yeah, sure, you can come. There's even evidence that some of these tests were gathering biometric data, uh, looking for signs of, you know, just children being upset while they take a test. Um, we don't want people doing that. And yet I, I'm someone who welcomes um, this new capitalistic system that we can build around uh, the metaverse and the alternative forms of currency. I'm, I'm very excited about it. Just a little bit cautious around kids. And so if you guys are going to be two of the movers and shakers helping to set laws, you know, go with transparency, go with kids are, are sacred. We need to protect the kids. Other than that, I say, you know, just sky's the limit. Go. Yeah. Well, thanks, Jenny. I um, I actually have a 10-day-old uh, daughter upstairs on the second floor. Uh, so I'm really glad you said that because that's... Oh, congrats. Awesome. That's so exciting. Thank you. Yeah, it's... Uh, I'm getting some sleep, but uh, it is very exciting. But I'm really glad you said that because that's frankly just something I didn't think about. But, um, you know, I, I didn't have a kid when um, Common Core kind of swept across and I know, you know, I was aware there was controversy, but again, not having a child at the time, I wasn't aware of those details, but um, I think you raise a great point with the um, transparency because one of the most common words I think you see in the space around uh, cryptocurrencies and the whole crypto space is anonymity. And sure, I mean, you know, at the individual level, that, that definitely has a lot of benefits. But when you come, this discussion we're having here about putting responsibility for our data in other people's hands, radical transparency, I think, is the direction you have to go. One of the things I said earlier in this conversation, a book that I read, Weapons of Math Destruction, talks about some of these big algorithms and how they're just such black boxes and they have such an influential sway over our lives today. And if you're a teacher, for example, that's subject to one of these new algorithms that evaluates your performance and you're considered to have done a poor job, and maybe you want to know, well, why was I evaluated that way? Uh, th there's stories in this book that you, 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 good luck, good luck figuring out why the algorithm, because that's a uh, company secret and you don't have access to that. And that, and that right there is the issue. I have a brilliant friend named Crystalline Swayze who did the bulwark of the writing around this issue. Number one, parents were not allowed to see the tests. Number two, um, you could not get anything around how my child did, you know, on a specific question. It was all so hidden. And that was a red flag to so many of us. And I'll share in the comment section one of the brilliant things that she wrote as a rejoinder to the state school board in the state where I lived at the time. We had a huge group of parents fighting against this. And it was all around data and privacy. And this never really 
you know, broke through into the media because they were just stereotyping us parents as just a bunch of fear mongering, you know, Luddites. And it's like, no, we want to know that our children are being protected and that their data, their privacy is safe. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's so bizarre sometimes to think about how data doesn't exist until we create it. And yet it is immediately taken out of our hands. And then it is the property of those who collect it. And there's little to no recourse that I know in this country to really change that power dynamic. Um, you know, uh, so, um, no, that's, that's, uh, I would would just add, I think to take away from all this is that it's actually something biology said in that thread, by the way, on the community dashboard stuff. But the there's this idea that the, the metrics that you harvest, they need to be buy-in. And like this idea of a data fiduciary, of course, would be community-owned, community-led. So the biometric data on children test-taking probably wouldn't pass the cut, right? Because people, if, if the actual... I mean, maybe maybe the majority of parents would say, yeah, sure. But I'm assuming, I, I think most of us would be uncomfortable with that. Um, now, a private company, I mean, it depends. It depends on if it's, a, if it's under a fiduciary. I mean, if there's truly an objective fiduciary where this is data that's not getting misused. I mean, I, I feel like most of us are just uncomfortable with with harvesting biometric data. If maybe if a parent wants them, or is okay with it, then they can opt in on that. But I mean, if you don't feel comfortable, well, then opt, of opt course. out of it. Don't give you know the, what I mean? Don't give the parent the SAT and the ACT test. We don't want parents to be able to let their kids cheat. That's not what I'm talking about. You know, yeah. what we're talking about is, as an example, I've, I've homeschooled my youngest son up till the eighth grade. Then he wanted to go and he needed to take a math placement test. I was not allowed to see that test. I would not able to see how they scored that test. And I, I just casually said, hey, can I look at the test? No. Well, I was his math teacher. I'd just like to see how he did. No, you can't see it. And I was like, this seems weird. You know, if he's taken and scored, why can't I even just look at it? And so it, it's that kind of sneakiness that's just really troubling to me. Yeah, that builds, well, that build, that builds the mistrust. And, and that's, that gets at the root of these problems is if if you can't trust any of the people in the community or the the overseers of the data, right? The people who are harvesting the stuff, then then this doesn't work, and that's part of the that's part of the issue, I think. Well, it's such a weird. I, I'm wildly interested in in that because it's when you're in school and you take a test, you know, usually you get the test back, and the teacher like, "Yeah, this is wrong. This is the right answer." So you understand why you got the grade you got. You understand you know, what you just, you have an understanding, but obviously when the criteria is being withheld, yeah, I'd be pissed too. It's like, uh, well, and this, when I was with the activist group, we lived in Utah and then we moved to Colorado and we moved to the very district that was the first to win the race to the top money. And what this was, was the Obama administration gave huge financial incentives for various districts to set common core up quick. 
And the, the counties that did it the fastest got millions of dollars. And so we moved to this very district. They handed every kid in the district in middle school and high school in a, a mini iPad. And the curriculum's already embedded on the iPad. And there was just, again, this lack of transparency of, of what's he being tested on? What's going on? He finally gave up in, in 10th grade years. Like, I, I don't want to be a part of this anymore. And he, he homeschooled for the last. Yeah. Um, no, I, 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 it's, it's so hard to see inside these black boxes. It's um, I'd like to see something come of it, but it just seems like, uh, you know, the flashpoints that exist now in terms of our, you know, data disagreements are, is it's always Mark Zuckerberg going up on Capitol Hill. It just doesn't seem like the conversation, like we're pissed, like we're all kind of pissed at, at how our data is being treated and, and whether it's our kids or us, you know, how it actually affects us, but it just doesn't, it, it, it sucks. It just feels like we keep complaining about the same thing. And um, yeah. <laughs> uh, I just I, think transpa- transparency is the answer. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're in agreement there. And I mean, like I said, like we were saying, I don't know how we transition. I don't know what it's going to take, but. Well, you know, the, the idea of the data co-op, you know, if, if you have some agency over your data before it gets out of your hands, you can actually maybe negotiate the terms of use. So I think that's definitely, a, it's a, it's a great idea that has potential, but um, because yeah, once the data leaves your hands, I mean, you know, mm-hmm. it, it's out there and your possession of it no longer has any value. They, they, they have it. That, that's where there's a, when we're treating data as capital, there are some distinct differences compared to existing forms of capital that need to be recognized. You know, the, the fact that older, older yeah. data is generally less useful. I don't think you can say that about other forms of capital. Um, the fact that, you know, it can be copied and shared and that it changes the, like, yeah, these are some of the nuances that are going to have to be taken into account when you try to make new solutions like this. But yeah, I I think maintaining control and negotiating terms before the data gets out of hand in this case saying, sure, you can, you know, test my kid and collect some additional non-biometric data, but um, you know, you're going to have to work through this, you know, parent um, teacher collective data. And I'm just going to throw it yeah, and I think well, we speak. We're talking about it in such vague terms, like data. Data is a very over-encompassing term. Like, there's different types of data. Obviously, I mean, I, I didn't even think about biometric stuff until Jenny brought it up. And so, I think that if you're going to do data co-ops, when you're doing this from a bottoms-up perspective, it's going to be very important to define the the data that you're actually talking about. And because we, we talk about it in terms of all this data, we're generating all this stuff. We're upset that people are monetizing it. Well, the conversation is more nuanced. We just have to figure out like the actual data points and it's going to be hard because of all the data that we're generating. So like, I think it's, it's going to be just very focused. It's going to take a lot of groundwork, grassroots effort to get these frameworks in different in, in healthcare, in education, in urban planning, there are all sorts of angles. Yeah, and I personally no trust a nonprofit yeah. or a group of people or independent business over a government entity at this point. A, a government has to earn my trust back. 
I, I'm not just going to take it at face value that they're going to do good things with my data, especially my kids' data. So you have to earn it back. But, you know, if we can agree that the kids are sacred, the children's data is sacred, and no, you are not entitled to it, I'm t Yeah. Jenny, no Jenny doubt. so um, with obviously trust being, being a, a major core pillar there, hypothetically, you know, th there is a difference of accountability. Whereas if, for instance, you had a nonprofit in charge of something, you know, revolving around your child rather than a government entity, um, you know, th there is some rules around transparency and there is, you know, you can vote out people, whether it's the uh, school board or, or whatnot with a um, nonprofit uh, that might not exist. Does that cause you any less trust with, with uh, different accountability kind of functions there or? Well, I hate to get into legalisms, but if somebody did my child wrong, it's much, much easier to sue that private business or that, you know, group than the government. So not that I'm, I, I'm not someone good... who is litigious at all. But, you know, again, if someone was so presumptuous that they would assume that they could have my child's data for whatever reason, um, I don't want to have to go up against a government agency or the schools or, you know, it's very, very difficult and expensive. Oh, that's a, okay. I appreciate that. Yeah, no doubt. Well, hey guys, this has been a really fun conversation. Jenny, thank you for stepping in and giving your perspective because that's, I'm, I'm not a parent, so important. And, um, yeah, so we're going to try to do this every week. I don't know. Jake has a newborn, so it's a little up in the air with the schedule, but maybe next Saturday, maybe next Friday, whenever it is, we'll definitely post it on Twitter. Um, I'm going to export this to the YouTube channel and create a Spotify channel, which we haven't done yet. Uh, we haven't this, published this to Spotify yet, so that'll be new. And yeah, we're just going to go through this book every some amount of time, hopefully every week. And it would be great to hopefully maybe we bring in some key, some KOLs, like some key opinion leaders, maybe an author from the book or somebody else who's been working on this stuff towards the end of it and actually take this conversation to the next level and put it into actionable items. So thanks for, yeah. thanks Jake for coming on and Jenny for chatting with us. Appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you very much, Jenny. Um, no, thank you. It was a pleasure and good luck with your baby. That's such a great time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's pretty wild. I think I'll have just enough time over the next week to read one or two more chapters. So uh, looking forward to next week. Good stuff. All right, guys. Talk to you later. <laughs>